Olá, pessoal, tudo bem? And welcome to the Brazil Crypto Report podcast, where we talk to the builders, entrepreneurs, and influencers from across the Brazil crypto ecosystem. I'm your host, Aaron Stanley, and today I'm joined by Isaac Costa to discuss Brazil crypto legislation. Isaac is an attorney and a professor at IMEC and INSPER, which are two of the top business schools in Brazil. Before we jump in, I'd like to say a quick thank you to our partner for this episode, which is the HBAR Foundation. HBAR Foundation works to support growth across the Hedera Hashgraph ecosystem. And if you're an entrepreneur in Brazil or the LATAM region, and you have a cool project or an idea that needs some help scaling or getting started, I highly recommend taking a look at these guys. They have several different grant funds in operation that are seeding projects across DeFi, FinTech, NFTs, and sustainability. And they've got a lot of other resources to help you out on your journey. So please do head over to hbarfoundation.org to take a look and learn more. With that, I'd like to welcome Isaac to the show. So, hey, Aaron, thanks for having me in the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time here. This is going to be a really good conversation. We're going to dig into some of the ins and outs of the Brazil crypto bill that has been, I guess, what, like seven years in the works now? <laughs> yes, seven years. We, we may be approaching a finish line sometime soon, but we're going to, we're going to examine that a bit more here. So, so, Isaac, to start, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your professional background, what you're doing now as it relates to the world of crypto and digital assets. So uh, originally, I'm a computer engineer from ETA, and I worked at software development and architecture for a couple of years. Uh, I worked at IBM and some other companies and a couple of startups. And uh, for some reason, I um, ended up working uh, with systems related to financial markets. And then I started working at the CVM, which is the Brazilian Securities and Exchange Commission. And later I studied law. I got a Bachelor of Laws degree by University of Sao Paulo, a Master of Laws degree by FGV. And uh, now I'm finishing my doctorate, which is a JSD degree for University of Sao Paulo. And in CBM, I worked uh, with enforcement of insider trading and market manipulation rules, and also as a, an advisor for the commissioners. And basically, right now, I'm into uh, everything that is in the intersection between uh, finance, technology, and regulation. I'm an attorney and in a law firm specialized in uh, financial regulation. And uh, I, I'm also a professor uh, of these subjects, and it's impossible to work with financial regulation without uh, stumbling upon crypto. And this is why I've been studying crypto since 2016. And I, I'm just an observer and I, I'm, I, I see myself as a tour guide or something like that, just an observer. It would be great to have this conversation with you. Great. I think that's the main reason I was excited to bring you on here to the show is that uh, it, it, I always like to talk to folks who are uh, impartial on some of these matters, right? Because especially in crypto, everybody has an agenda, right? In, in, in politics, everybody has an agenda. But I wanted somebody who could help us without advocating for a particular position, just kind of help us understand what the arguments are, what the issues are, who the various competing parties are. So maybe so for listeners who have not been maybe following this super closely, could you give us an overview of of this Brazil crypto legislation. This has been in the works for quite a long time. Um, and we find the last year, it's finally picked up enough traction to really get, get voted on in the, in the camera and the Senate. Um, and maybe, so maybe talk a bit about how we got here and uh, at a high level, what are its proponents looking to accomplish? 
Okay, so in 2015, uh, there was the first proposal, right? Uh, basically, it, uh, it tries to prohibit any transactions involving cryptocurrencies, and mostly uh, the legislative process in Brazil uh, has been stimulated by scams and crimes, right? So uh, the authorities are very concerned with Ponzi schemes and things like that. So crypto started uh, to show up in the agenda of the politicians because of this crime concerns, okay, criminal concerns. And uh, in the past few years, a different approach has been taken in order to uh, stimulate a crypto ecosystem in Brazil. So well, we can state that the latter legislative proposals, they try to address uh, legal certainty for the virtual asset sector. So incumbent institutions can finance these new uh, corporations. Uh, they are concerned about uh, providing incentives for competition in financial markets, protecting the investors and consumers. They are concerned with information security, cybersecurity, and uh, mostly uh, the prevention of money laundering, right? So uh, there is a couple of principles and goals that this proposal tries to address, but these are the key points, right? They try, they are trying to create a uh, a positive environment to attract investments to Brazil in order to foster uh, the growth of the crypto ecosystems. In order to achieve these goals, accordance to all the other legislative proposals over the world, these rules they target the so-called virtual asset service provider, right? The VASPs. So basically, uh, these are persons who provide financial services like uh, involving crypto assets, so trading, issuance custody and all of those things, uh, basically any solution involving crypto assets, but not only crypto assets, any form of virtual assets, because the definition of virtual assets does not rely on blockchain technology or cryptographic algorithms. That's an important uh, remark uh, here. So this uh, proposal tries to create a comprehensive regulation for virtual assets, okay? And, and basically, it's just as we will cover in this conversation, Aaron, this is just the beginning. This is the first step because uh, most of the details, they are going to be, uh, let's say, uh, provided by uh, a new rules that will be uh, created by probably the Brazilian Central Bank. So right now, this bill is just a cornerstone of a regulatory regime for crypto assets. It delegates the power to create rules for the Brazilian Central Bank, but it's not empty, right? It's not a skeleton uh, pr uh, proposal. It has some substantive provisions, and we are going to address that in this conversation. As for the stakeholders, uh, one last remark here uh, in this answer to your question. I believe that the Brazilian Central Bank uh, can be indicated as the main sponsor of this project right now. Uh, so uh, incumbent financial institutions, they also want some legal certainty and some Brazilian crypto companies that are committed to compliance and they want to be subjected uh, to regulations. Uh, it, and it, not all companies in Brazil want that, right? Because as, you, as we know, uh, the crypto ecosystem is tied to the cyberpunk 
a movement and uh, the state is uh, an invader or something like that that is an alien to the crypto ecosystem so uh, but some companies in brazil they want the regulation and so we can say that these are the main stakeholders uh, of this project right now and as we continue this conversation we'll talk a bit more about the tug of war essentially between some of these different uh, entities interest groups etc obviously any legislative project is a sausage making process in this sense and especially when it comes to crypto you know amplified by by a few factors so the legislation this bill first passed in the camera or the chamber of deputies in december of last year uh, and then it was sent over to the senate uh, the senate spent a few months considering it uh, there's some changes made and then it was passed in April, I believe. And then it was uh, punted back over to the, the Chamber of Deputies, who ha now has to approve or reject these changes that the Senate made. And Expedito Neto, who is the, the rapporteur for the bill in the, the camera, has rejected a bunch of these changes that the Senate sent over, uh, which has now created a bit of consternation, maybe we could say, or a, a bit of uncertainty as to how this is all going to play out and what the final text uh, will look like when it will be voted on, if it's voted on at all. Could you walk us through what were these changes that the Senate included that Expedito Neto has, is now trying to remove and what is so controversial about this? So uh, before we delve into these changes, uh, it's important to state that all the uh, announcements made by Expedito Neto and other deputies, uh, they indicate that they are not exactly concerned with one provision or another provision. They just want to avoid uh, further discussions at this time. So I got the impression that they want to pass the bill as is without uh, having to discuss the inclusions made by the Senate. So basically, uh, I believe that the Senate, uh, it was more open to hear uh, some interests of some groups. So they have detailed some provisions. They have these provisions, they are mostly related to prevention of certain risks and to prevent uh, regulatory arbitrage as we uh, are going to see. So basically, let me go through uh, these provisions. Uh, as we uh, indicated earlier, uh, these virtual asset service providers, they are going to be integrated uh, with the Brazilian payment systems, right? They are going to provide services for hosting accounts for Brazilians, and there are uh, currently uh, two types of accounts that are regulated, the so-called uh, bank deposit accounts and the payment accounts. Right. So uh, first, these changes made by the Senate, they include the transition regime. So all of the current VASPs that are working, that are providing services in Brazil, uh, of course, they won't have the authorization, right? They will need to apply to get this license. So they will be allowed to continue to provide the services during a certain period of time, uh, at least six months, it is included in the text of the bill. So they can adapt to these new requirements that the, the rule will uh, provide, right? So the problem is that the requirements for uh, being allowed to provide the services during this transition regime, they include that you have to create or you have to have a local uh, entity in Brazil, like a limited liability company or a corporation in Brazil, in order to provide those services. 
And settlement uh, changes have that, others don't. And also uh, the bill, uh, the changes made by the Senate, they include the requirement that you must provide information to the tax authorities, right? We already have a rule by the Brazilian IRS equivalent to uh, require data from the exchanges, okay? But uh, the foreign exchanges that don't have a local entity in Brazil, they say that as we don't have a company in Brazil, we are not subject to those rules. So this is uh, one of the, the problems that we're going to uh, detail later. So in addition to having a local entity and the obligation to provide data to the tax authorities, uh, the bill, the changes on the bill made by the Senate, they ask these VOSPs to provide information to the anti-money laundering authorities, right? So they must have systems to detect suspicious transactions. Uh, they must comply with the KYC requirements, the know your client requirements, and all the uh, regulations on anti-money laundering, anti-money laundering. So these are also additions made by the Senate. Uh, it's just that for the transition, right? The proposal on, uh, that came from the Chamber of Deputies, they did not detail this transition regime. So they had the obligation to communicate uh, the anti-money laundry authorities, but only after the authorization. So this is the changes. This is the, the, the conflicting point. Also, uh, one of the requirements included by the Senate is that and this is, is quite important given the current uh, scenario in crypto, in this crypto winter, is that uh, the assets of the customers, they must be segregated uh, from the assets of the VASP. What does this mean? It means that uh, if you deposit some fiat money or crypto assets in a VASP, in an exchange, for example, uh, the exchange is not allowed to do uh, anything they want with your resources, right? They are not allowed to uh, sell your crypto assets and invest in uh, DeFi protocols or anything like that, or in uh, hedge funds like 3AC or something like that. They need to, uh, they won't be allowed to touch your assets. So in cases of bankruptcy, all you have to do is claim your assets back and uh, all the obligations of the exchange uh, must be met with the exchange's own assets. So this is important in terms of consumer protection and uh, banks' privacy law. And basically, uh, in, uh, in addition, and you told me that you already had a conversation with someone about the tax exemptions. Another inclusion uh, uh, made by the Senate is the tax exemptions for the so-called green mining, which is mining with renew renewable energy sources. So uh, in summary, I know this list is long, but in summary, uh, the Senate uh, created a transition regime with some requirements for anti-money laundering, communication for tax authorities, uh, uh, creating a local entity in Brazil and segregation of assets uh, of the clients from the exchanges, from the VASPs. So these are the key provisions of the law. Uh, uh, in this proposal included by the Senate and are subject to discussions. And they are probably not going to be included in the final act. And, and recent reporting from this week reveals that that certain stakeholders like the Banco Central and, and others are not super excited about some of these changes being 
potentially removed from the final text, right? So maybe talk a bit about what is, what's the pressure here or, or what's, what, what are they particularly objecting to? The CDM is concerned with investor protection. The central bank is mostly concerned with competition and financial markets and uh, prudential regulation, right? They don't want uh, people to be insolvent, right? These institutions to be insolvent, okay? Uh, the nightmare of any financial regulator is uh, a bank run, right? So basically they try to avoid that. So when you reject a rule like the segregation of assets, uh, it uh, pops a red light in the central bank, right? So, uh, and, and let's say you are a client of an exchange. You want to invest in cryptocurrency and then you deposit, let's say $100,000 in the exchange and you believe that this asset is over there and you trade and you see your balance evolving and everything. But uh, on the background, the exchange got your money, right? And did something with it. They uh, tried to leverage using your money, right? Just like the banks create money uh, providing loans, right? The exchange, they want to be allowed to do that. So they will want to, let's say, invest in DeFi protocol, invest in hedge funds, and invest in whatever they want. Uh, and they may or may not share these properties with you, right? Uh, some exchanges, they do not uh, provide some transparency on what they're doing. If the uh, assets are there, effectively there, or if they, are, if they are using the assets for any other purpose, okay? So uh, from the point of view of the objectors of this rule, they want flexibility, right? For new business models, uh, they want to have the leverage, right, to get uh, new revenue sources. And it's uh, totally understandable that they don't want this rule. And also, uh, I believe that uh, they uh, want to be regulated like banks, right? They want to generate money. They want to provide credit. Uh, from the point of view of the central bank and for some other players in the sector, they believe that this uh, creates a negative incentives, right? Pernicious uh, or bad incentives for these exchanges to use their clients' money in uh, risky endeavors. And uh, in the event of a crypto run, like we have seen in the past few weeks, uh, when you want to claim your assets back and you want to withdraw your assets, uh, you're going to have a bad surprise that your assets are not there. So we have to make a decision here. What is the kind, the type of regulation that we want? Uh, in a scientific approach, I cannot say which one is the better, right? But uh, we need to understand what's uh, in the table, what's on the table, right? So do we want to protect the investors and uh, prohibiting the exchanges to touch the client's assets? Let's say creating some kind of uh, protection or dome on these assets. So the exchanges, they would not be able to use those assets. So when they want to withdraw, oh, everything is there. Or do we want to create a more flexible regimes and treat the exchanges as banks, right? But remember that banks are allowed to create money by providing loans because there is a very strong prudential regulation over them, over them right? right? So you cannot, you cannot have the best of both worlds. 
So let's say I want to be a bank, but I don't want to be regulated as a bank. So this is something that we must have in mind. So this is the key controversy around this question uh, involving segregation of regimes. Is this a rule, this asset segregation rule, which I think you know, you're absolutely right, given the current state of affairs in the market, it's a conversation that, that at least needs to be had, right? Uh, is this a rule that would need to be implemented in the legislation, or is this something that the, the central bank could, assuming that the central bank becomes the regulator that's tasked with overseeing the industry, is this something that the, the central bank could impose through its own rulemaking process? Uh, it needs to be in the, in the law, in the uh, legislation created by the Congress, because uh, this kind of uh, segregated assets, uh, segregated balance. Uh, needs to be created in the law. So let's say for the payments institution that that were regulated back in uh, from a law from 2013, uh, they needed to create that that rule in, in on a law level. It cannot be implemented in a rule level. So this is why uh, several uh, groups are pressuring the the chamber of deputies to include, to at least maintain this provision. Some of these other provisions, like the tax reporting rules, are these other areas that would also need to be in the legislation? Are these rules that the central bank could also impose on the industry via its own authority? Well, we are in a gray area, but I believe that uh, it's important to have these provisions in, in the law for the, those that are interested in these provisions, of course, uh, because uh, you will uh, reject the uh, allegation that as I don't have a company in Brazil, I don't need to comply with Brazilian regulations, okay? So uh, even if the central bank imposed that in the rule, one could challenge that uh, those uh, requirements because they could say, oh, that's uh, unconstitutional, that's illegal because the law did not demand that. And they could foresee several arguments to attack such a requirement in the rules. So I believe that if we want to have legal certainty, it would be desirable to have these provisions on a law level and not on a rule level. That's the, my best shot on it. So what you're saying is the central bank were to try to impose these rules on its own, that opens the attack surface, if you will, for all sorts of lawsuits and challenges that your the regulator is overstepping its authority. And going back to kind of the transition regime that you spoke about earlier, I know this was a big point of contention that Expeditu Netu had made some comments publicly about uh, in the Senate version of the, if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, in the Senate version of the text, the law basically required companies to be in compliance with all of these provisions on day one, once the law was enacted, whereas Expeditu Netu came out and said, this is unrealistic. You cannot expect everyone to be, to play by these same rules, especially for some of these overseas exchanges that uh, are not currently in compliance with these, these provisions. It's unrealistic to impose this type of deadline on them. Uh, and, and there's all these kind of rumors floating around that, you know, Expeditu Netu is being sort of, you know, paid off by Binance or something or, <laughs> but, you know, but like, but obviously like the, these companies to be in compliance on day one would obviously be a big blow to Binance and some of these other overseas exchanges. I mean, what do you make of this? What's the, what's realistic here as far as this window to bring exchanges, to bring themselves into compliance? Like what, what's realistic and what's maybe the precedent for these types of things in Brazil? I believe this is a, a very important question uh, on this whole uh, legislative process. Let's say first, 
when you say day one, right, this law, it uh, imposes what we call a vacatio legis provision, meaning that it's only going to be enforced 180 days after its enactment, okay? So uh, all the service providers, they will have at least six months to adapt to these regulations and to uh, be required to comply with this regulation. So it's not exactly, hey, the, pre the president sanctioned the law and now uh, tomorrow we need to comply with this law. Okay, it's not like that. Everyone is going to have at least six months. So as we uh, go uh, through this overseas exchange argument, I believe that first uh, side, it sounds reasonable, but when you uh, look into it in detail, Let's say you mentioned Binance, but it's not only Binance, right? Crypto.com, uh, FTX, and every, everyone, uh, Huobi, KuCoin, and all these other exchanges. Uh, some of them, they are publicly stating that they want to comply with the authorities, right? They want to protect their customers. They have all the KYC controls in place, all the anti-money laundry controls in place. So uh, it's kind of contradictory, right? That these exchanges that want to comply and, and they uh, advertise that they protect the customers and they have all the controls, they don't have six months to adapt to these requirements, to these reporting requirements. Uh, that's not, that does not sound reasonable to me, okay? But I understand the background of this objection to this rule, meaning, we don't want, do, do we want to protect the Brazilian exchanges that already comply with the regulations voluntarily without being imposed on that? And the uh, overseas exchanges that uh, already comply with these regulations, like BITSO, for example, right? They came to Brazil uh, already compliant with all the regulations. Do we want to reward the behavior of these exchanges? Or do we want to uh, create a level playing field? So any new overseas exchange that want to come to Brazil, they will have the proper time to adapt to these regulations, right? I, I, I think this argument is, uh, as I said, in first sight, it's reasonable. But when you see the size and uh, the advertisements of some of the overseas uh, exchanges that object in this role, I don't know, I, I don't feel comfortable saying that this is reasonable anymore, right? I believe that they will have plenty of time to adapt and it will be desirable for the overall ecosystem to have this role in place, mostly because this is a big controversy, right? Is it easy or is it hard to laundry money uh, with crypto and everything? But despite that, right, everyone wants to protect customers. You don't want to put your money in an exchange that uh, allows terrorists or drug dealers or everyone to use it as a, a way to launder money. And uh, you don't want your money to be some kind of uh, uh, in, in the same account without any segregation of these people, right? Any, no one wants that. Even those overseas exchanges, they don't want that. So I believe that a rule like that is not, it's not a reasonable thing to ask to these people. And it, is, it would be beneficial, it would be positive for the development of the ecosystem in Brazil. It's, it would not uh, damage the competition. On the contrary, this rule will create a level playing field, uh, raising the bar in terms of compliance and uh, legislation 
uh, requirements. You're saying that if all the exchanges essentially are subject to this 180 day window, yes. the same 180 day window yes. uh, that is already that that is already kind of baked in, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Everybody is subject to the same 180 day window. Yes. And as the Senate legislation was written, that 180 day window that would already take effect, right? Is that am I understanding that correctly? Like there would once the once the legislation is signed, mm -hmm. everyone would have this 180 day yes. window. It wouldn't be like okay if if the if the law is signed on July 10th, then mm -hmm. everyone has to be in compliance on July 10th. Exactly. It's, exactly. Ends to January 10th. Yes. So, so what was it? What exactly was the point of contention then that Expeditu Netu was was referring to? There are the people that were objecting to this referring were they asking for more time like they should have an extended window beyond that 180 days mm -hmm. to to come into compliance or w what exactly was the the point of contention here oh that's the tricky part right i i think it would be totally understandable if that was the true reason behind the objection i believe that it would be uh we would hear something like hey give us more time give us like one year or something like that just like you said but uh, on the opposite, uh, the the ones that object this rules, not only the compliance requirements, the creation of a local entity in Brazil, but also the segregation of assets, they want the law to be enacted without any rules regarding that. Okay, so they want these uh, topics uh, either to not be covered by the law or by and probably by the central bank in the future. We cannot uh, state that. Uh, they won't be. They won't come to the central bank and discuss this and raise this objection. Hey, give us more time. Okay, uh, we we cannot say that they won't do that uh, when the central bank provides a public consultation for the new rule. But at this time, it seems like they want to have the most flexible law in force, and they don't want to discuss these topics. They want to be able to provide services in Brazil without having to create a local entity. They uh, seem that they don't want to comply with the uh, regulation at all, even though they are publicly stating that they want to comply with regulation. And here is a, a thing that on one hand, you say that you want to comply, you want to cooperate with the authorities, that you provide data to investigation crimes and uh, investigation crimes and everything like that. But on the other hand, what you see is somehow you are trying to influence the legislative process to not uh, create these things as an obligation, okay? So I believe this is kind of contradictory, but uh, from a scientific point of view, I believe that this is a legitimate uh, claim, right? They don't want the regulation to be so intrusive that they uh, prohibit some business model that they can uh, easily uh, come to Brazil and uh, minimize the compliance costs, okay? They are rational agents and it's totally understandable that they want that. But I believe that, is this the crypto market that we want, right? Is the objection of the Petito Neto uh, the majority? Does this reflect the majority of Brazilian agents in the crypto sector? I don't know that, okay? So I believe that there's a lot of power in uh, one person or in a group of persons, and this is the way it is. The, there's legislative processes are social <laughs> creation process, as you said.
going back to the point of the, look, on, on one hand, these actors are saying we want to be regulated, we want to comply. And on the other hand, they're, they're lobbying and they're trying to uh, get the sort of the loosest rules possible. You know, I, I guess it depends on how you look at it. And what I guess you could look at that as being kind of, you know, two-faced or nefarious or whatever. But I guess in my view, I would look at, I mean, I, I lived for 10 years in Washington, D.C. So I sort of know how this stuff works, where these groups come out and they say, oh, yeah, we support, you know, we're pro-regulation, we're pro-whatever. You know, I mean, this is, I mean, these people wouldn't be doing their job correctly if they weren't advocating for like, you know, the least amount of, I don't think it's necessarily inconsistent to say we want to be compliant, but we also don't want to comply with rules that don't make any sense. Right. And then, and then from their point of view, like if all these, if all these local guys and, and, and Bitso and Mercado Bitcoin and whoever they want to, if these guys want to voluntarily comply with all this stuff and, and pass those costs onto their customers, that's their prerogative, but we're trying to create the best, uh, you know, experience for our customers and create the most value for our customers. And, uh, in order to do that, we have to fight against these things that in our view are not sensible, uh, regulations, I guess, or, or, are overly strict or overly costly or whatever. So, I, I mean, in my view, I mean, I'd like your thoughts on this too, but in my view, I'm, I, I see this, uh, I don't really see there's necessarily a, you know, there's no like right or wrong side here. I have no like financial relationship or anything with anybody on side of this. So I'm trying to be as objective as I can here, but I don't necessarily see there's a right or wrong side. I, I see it as this is strictly sort of like a, you know, a Machiavellian uh, sort of political struggle here mm -hmm. where, you know, the, like whoever, whoever's, whoever's right will be the one who wins at mm -hmm. the end of the day. Right? Yes. Um, so, you know, so, so I understand, I understand the objections of the local exchanges who are, who are kicking up a fuss about this. And, you know, I would be doing the same thing if I were in their shoes, but I also understand where the, uh, you know, the Binance's and the crypto.coms and these other folks are coming from. And I, if I were in their shoes, I would be doing the exact same thing that they're doing. Mm -hmm. So, um, is there necessarily like a right or wrong is or is there, a, is there a black or white here, or is this just kind of, is this just whoever wins is the one who will end up being right? Well, I think that in order to answer this question, we need to rephrase it, right? So let me give you a couple of examples. Suppose that you want to invest in crypto and you know that exchange A communicates everything to the tax authority. So at the end of the year, you're going to have to inform the tax authorities that, hey, I, uh, these are my profits, these are the taxes that I need to pay and everything like that. On the other hand, on exchange B, you are almost sure that they don't inform the tax authorities at all. And you don't want to pay your taxes, right? Uh, so which one, which exchange is probably uh, the best for you, probably exchange B, right? If you don't want to pay the taxes. So is it right or wrong? It depends, but crypto movement uh, started as a cyberpunk uh, development. So people say that state is an enemy, right? Paying taxes is not desirable and things like that. So for this kind of people, exchange B in this flexible regime would be nice. But on the other hand, if we are under the rule of law, right? And if we want legal certainty, if we want investments for the incumbents, if you want crypto unicorns, a market with investor protections, a market that uh, where uh, you go to an exchange and you uh, 
you have a problem and you are you can go to the authorities and uh, kind of, of uh, fight for your rights, then uh, probably exchange A will be um, uh, desirable, right? So in the short term, uh, you will have less costs, less compliance costs, right? Uh, you're going to have uh, the ability to escape from the authorities, right? To go under the radar, but is it good? Is it what we want from the crypto X system? Is this what we want uh, in the long term, right? The crypto X systems to be outside the sphere of the state, outside the sphere of the state authorities and the incumbent financial institutions. Some people do want that, right? And, and that's fine if they want that. But is this what the whole market wants, right? So I believe that in the end, uh, if there is a right or wrong, it depends on your view what, what uh, do you want from the crypto markets in the medium and in the long term, right? If you want to merge, I, I always uh, try to see this as I came from the financial uh, market before crypto, I see as a convergence, right? Uh, we need to get the best that we have from the financial markets and try to put it on crypto. And I believe that investor protection, anti-money laundry rules, uh, KYC and everything is a good thing from my side, personal opinion. Okay, from my side, I believe that I believe in in these things. I believe that even though these requirements some sometimes they create nonsense rules and uh, a lot of compliance costs, it's better to have them and try to improve them and make them more reasonable, more adequate, more proportional than not having them at all. Okay, uh, having this sense of wild west. And, uh, and I believe that from the crypto side, we need to learn these new business models, uh, the reduced costs, the technology, and we need to incorporate that in the traditional financial market. So the end result will be uh, a new financial market, an improved financial market. And I, this is the crypto market that I want uh, in the medium and the long term. But is this the crypto market that you want or that the other actors want? Right. So yeah. right or wrong depends on the answer on this question. Yeah. And this is this is a fascinating question that I actually do spend a lot of time thinking about. Maybe it's germane to this conversation. Maybe it's not. But <laughs> we could probably have another hour long conversation on it. But I don't necessarily have a, you know, a, a firm opinion on like which side that I'm on. You need some degree of rule of law and some degree of protection. Uh, well, at the same time, I, I don't feel like the KYC uh, regimes are like I, I don't think they're effective at stating they're doing at accomplishing what the, the they these try to accomplish right if anything as far as like protecting investors or any of these kind of things uh, or even preventing money laundering um all i know is that from you know i've gone through kyc on probably a dozen exchanges and i know that all my personal information is sitting in a, is in these honeypot exchanges just waiting to be hacked by somebody and I'm, I'm assuming that like every criminal organization in the world at this point probably has access to my, all of my personal information. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm uncomfortable with that. I, there's nothing I can do about it, but I'm just assuming that that's probably the case right now. So I've, I've been thinking a lot about how can the industry, what, what's, a, what's a solution that the industry itself can implement to basically KYC its own users in a sense? And, uh, and this is really kind of down a rabbit hole, but I would, I would like to get your thoughts mm -hmm. on it. 
so in the instance of uh, of DeFi, right, where in we've the last two years we've had an abundance of these different airdrops mm-hmm. and people airdro- protocols airdropping tokens to their own users. So like Uniswap kind of kicked this off back, you know, maybe two years ago. Uh, you know, I received the Uniswap airdrop in a couple of different wallets that I had, where I, you know, I I literally made like one transaction on Uniswap out of these wallets, and then all of a sudden I get airdropped this, you know, this these tokens mm-hmm. worth a few thousand dollars. I'm like, Hey, this is pretty cool. But the problem is like, I'm, I'm not like a loyal Uniswap user in any mm-hmm. way. Right. I like I used it a few times of a few different wallets, but I don't consider myself to be part of the community. Uh, I don't use it that much. I don't really care. I mean, I, I like it, but I mean, it's a cool product, but I don't, I don't really have any vested interest mm-hmm. in it myself and you know lots of other people in crypto have kind of been going or you can you can make quite a bit of money by like airdrop farming mm-hmm. basically you go and you use these things one time uh just enough to get you know try to get the airdrop and then you use it with different wallets you can get the airdrop and, and it's 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 just kind of gaming the system yes. right it's not really helping the community like the, the protocol is trying to stimulate their own community and reward their own community mm-hmm. but what they're what, what's happened is that people are just kind of gaming the system by trying to utilize the the protocol with as many wallets as they can to collect airdrops. You know, if there's a way that that say if I'm a DeFi protocol, if I'm able to kind of KYC my own user in the sense that I'm 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 airdropping tokens to people that I know are actual members of that community or diehard users and not just people who are airdrop farming uh, that will just go on to the next protocol once they get the airdrop, that would be an advantage for mm-hmm. me, right? Um, so anyway, so, so I'm, you know, I've been trying to think a bit about more, like, how can you kind of, you verify these, you know, what could be a potential industry alternative to KYC mm-hmm. and, um, and I'm not, I'm not this like anti KYC mm-hmm. person. Like I'm not, that's not my, 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 but I just don't think it's been as, uh, I just don't think it's effective mm-hmm. its stated purpose, uh, in the current kind of finan- in the current regime, I guess mm-hmm. the current, the current marketplace. Okay. Um, and and I have a funny story about that <laughs> that maybe I will. I was actually Love to hear that. one of the highlights <laughs> at, at the Bitcoin Miami conference in 2021. I was actually on a panel uh, with Brian Brooks and Chris Giancarlo, mm-hmm. and uh, at the conclude, I was moderating the panel. And to conclude the panel, uh, Chris Giancarlo said something like, you know, he said to the audience, like, if you guys go around saying things like. KYC is an illicit activity. It's not going to end well for you. And then everyone started booing us, and and we basically got booed Ooh. off the stage. John uh, <laughs> said that. So, oh, so okay. Uh, so that was that was that was interesting. Okay. But anyway, I would love to kind of your thoughts on this. Like, we do need to verify identities. Mm-hmm. We do need to know who people are. It's it's in interest of of exchanges and and protocols to to know who their users are. But KYC, I don't is is. This is this is these are rules that were implemented in the 1970s before any of these technologies that we're talking mm-hmm. about right now uh, were even uh, uh, even dreamed of. So, um, what, do you see there being kind of like a healthy alternative here? Uh, I believe that the, these are two separate questions. First, do we want KYC? And second, how can we implement KYC? Right? I believe that the crypto community does not. Uh, uh, consensus has not emerged on the first question because people still value privacy on crypto transactions, right? You just gave a fascinating example uh, on how the DeFi protocols 
could be more effective uh, uh, preventing this uh, opportunistic or even parasitic right, uh, behavior for some users. So first, do we want KYC? How much of your privacy are you willing to sacrifice right, in order to uh, uh, have your data and have your wallets associated to your identity? So this is the first question. And the second question is, if you want KYC, what are the requirements? We are talking about technology. We are talking about software here. So before creating any solution, before developing any software and writing any line of code, we need to get the requirements. And the requirements are, okay, these are the data that I'm going to collect. And if the users, uh, if you want users to be comfortable about having this data uh, in our system, what are the information security controls that we need to have in place? What are the cybersecurity controls that we need to have in place? Okay, so I don't have the answer for you on what is the best way to implement the KYC. I believe that there are, there are much more qualified people working on things like self-sovereign identity and things like that. But I believe that first, we need to get a consensus on if we want KYC on crypto, uh, is it going to be voluntary or is it going to be obligated by any rule? This is the first question. And second, uh, if we must remember that and, and, and in, the, in the foreseen future, when we have this detailed regulation by the central bank, one of the requirements for any crypto asset service providers is to present to the authorities what are their uh, information security controls? What are the plans on the resilience of their systems? Okay, so the banks, they have all your data, but banks, they are obligated to have several controls to prevent this data to be leaked. We still have leaks in banks, but uh, we also have a lot of controls and they are punished when we have these leaks. And they are, in my opinion, they are not as frequent as they are in the current crypto landscape. Okay, so remember, we, along with KYC, we must need to, uh, we, we need to ensure that we have enough information security to, to prevent leaks because this is a very sensitive thing. Okay, so these are the requirements for the solution, whatever it is. I don't have the answer for what is the best solution, but I believe that these are the minimum requirements for the solution to have. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the question that that I end up having there is, I don't think you can ever prevent leaks, mm -hmm. right? Uh, hackers are, it's, it's always a cat and mouse game between information systems and hackers who are trying to to get into these things a lot of times leaks are things that are are purposely purposefully done by insiders um which there's no there's no system that can prevent that um and and in crypto i mean just due to the kind of the the, the nature of crypto there's there are a lot of people that uh, are very very subjective or are very very sensitive about i don't want other people to know that i'm crypto right Obviously, because there's there's lots of personal security risk that comes with it, especially in a country like mm -hmm. Brazil, right, where things like kidnappings and extortions, I mean, these things happen, yeah. right? So if you're in Brazil, you don't necessarily want the whole world knowing that you've you're, you're a crypto whale, yes. right? Uh, in fact, you're probably you probably you know 
you'd be advised to, to, I mean, there's a reason all of these, all of these OG Bitcoiners from like the early days have all kind of disappeared, yes, right? Because exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't want people to know who they are, where they live, right? They don't want, they don't want that, right? They don't want that publicity. So, and not, not to sort of, I, I don't want to take this, you know, mm-hmm. too far away from the beaten path or what we're, what we're trying to talk, focus on here, which is the legislation. Mm-hmm. But I do think this is an important conversation to have. And I think there's not going to be, I, I do think there, we're going to continue to have a world where there's going to be two parallel universes, essentially, of kind of KYC crypto and non-KYC okay. crypto, right? There's going to be you know, a lot of people that are mining Bitcoin at home just for the, just, they'll, they'll mine Bitcoin at home for a loss just mm-hmm. to get uh, non-KYC mm-hmm. stats, for instance. Uh, and those sats will will surely eventually trade at a premium uh, uh, over over KYC sats someday uh, if they don't already. So, um, and, and this kind of dovetails into a point that you've made elsewhere, which is that that the requirement the 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 requirement that exchanges need to in Brazil need to register as business entities and that they need to obtain a license from the federal mm-hmm. government uh, that this requirement could potentially backfire as it would basically chase a lot it, it would basically chase a lot of these people a lot of the mm-hmm. users to drive these people to unlicensed overseas exactly. exchanges because they don't want these they don't want all their information being reported to the government like their tax information yes. or their kyc information or whatever i mean how big of a how, how big of a perverse incentive is this well i think that if the law is enacted uh without the proper controls or for preventing regulatory arbitrage, it's going to damage the whole uh, Brazilian companies that want to comply with the regulations, okay? If this is good or bad, of course it's bad for the Brazilian companies, okay? It's good for the ones that will get their customers, the clients, but, uh, and and a lot of people are saying that, hey, these uh, so, call exchanges that comply with regulation. Uh, they are, um, they have high fees. Uh, they don't have the proper usability. They're, they're not the best ones. And in a free market, we you, you uh, need to reward the best ones and so forth. Uh, there is uh, a merit in this argument. Okay, but on the other hand, I once again ask, is this what we want? Do we want a law to be enacted to foster the crypto ecosystem in Brazil uh, to be the cause of, um, uh, let's say, uh, destroying the Brazilian companies, right? To get a, a client run for these overseas exchanges because they are cheap, because they do not communicate data to the authorities, because they are not subject to the same compliance costs? Is this what we want? If we want a free market where uh, the winner takes it all, it's fine, right? But if we want to create a level playing field where we want to give a chance to this Brazilian company, and not only to this Brazilian company, but to the other uh, overseas exchanges that want to comply like Coinbase, like Bitso and so forth, uh, then I believe that it would be desirable to have the controls to prevent regulatory arbitrage. So it depends on what we want. And we, as Brazilian citizens, right? We, as the voters of these deputies and the senators and everything. So my question is, does Espedito Neto, at this point, really uh, represent the majority 
of the Brazilian community, of the Brazilian voters. I'm not so sure of that, okay, because we have all the Senate and we have a lot of, uh, of deputies. And I, in my personal opinion, I don't think that the, uh, the remarks, the, the, the statements, the public statements that uh, these people have made, uh, that Davis Petitonato has made, they are uh, immune to some uh, logical reasoning. So we can conclude that, hey, I don't think the benefits of suppressing those provisions are really the ones that we want at this time. I guess the counterpoint, and just to maybe kind of play devil's advocate here and yes. push back slightly, is that taking the the position here of the Brazilian, the local exchanges, what they're advocating for is kind of a game of essentially kicking away the ladder and playing kind of building this kind of regulatory capture mm -hmm. moat type of game, yes. right? Where it's like, okay, we've built ourselves into a legitimate thing. We've kind of, we spun ourselves up in, into large businesses without in basically a gray area, even though we were trying to comply with rules that may not have really existed. Uh, and now we're trying to essentially kick away the ladder for other type, other competition mm -hmm. that might potentially come up or that might potentially emerge, including mm -hmm. these large overseas guys that we perceive as a threat, but also other local exchanges that might, might emerge yes. as well. And I get it. This is a game that gets played in every industry yes. when there's regulation involved. This isn't, this happens all the time. It's not like a, a directed criticism mm -hmm. or anything, but if we do want to talk about leaving market dynamics or let it, letting the free market and, and market dynamics lead the, be a, be a priority here. Are we, and we were talking about what's best for the Brazilian mm -hmm. consumer is stifling competition potentially in this way, a net positive for the Brazilian consumer. Well, that's a great, very great question because competition is always good, right? For the Brazilian consumers. And uh, if we really want to prevent uh, regulatory barriers to entry for new local exchanges, your statement is, is uh, totally true, right? Uh, I cannot uh, say anything against it, and I totally agree with that. But uh, on the other hand, it, it, it's just like you said before, right? It's not a Machiavellian uh, discussion. It's not a good or bad, because if you look at the big overseas exchanges that they don't want to comply, or at least they say they want to comply, but on the other hand, they, they want a, a more flexible regime. They are the ones that are trying to create a regulatory barrier uh, to the proceeding exchanges or the compliant exchanges by the absence of regulation, right? The absence of regulation create uh, bad incentives for the actors. So it creates uh, an invisible barrier, right? No regulation is a, a regulatory barrier for the Brazilian exchanges. On the other hand, this regulation will be a regulatory barrier for new local exchanges that might emerge in Brazil. So again, who do we want to favor in the discussion, right? Do we want to sponsor a free market dynamics? And let's say, okay, we are going to give up these controls uh, in order to get the market uh, to uh, solve itself, right? To uh, as a as if an invisible hand could uh, somehow uh, uh, create a solution for it. That's fine. That's uh, one legitimate point of view. On the other hand, uh, do we want to interfere 
in this market in order to prevent information asymmetry, uh, abuse of economic power, externalities, and, and so forth, or the market failures that justify any regulation at all. Uh, do we want that to be a part of the regulatory regime for crypto? Right, so it, we answer yes to the second question, then we are going to create this regulatory barrier just like we did in other markets, as you stated. And this is why people are upset, right? The crypto uh, diehard fans, they see these uh, compliant exchanges, uh, they are as playing the game the banks do, right? They want to create barriers for new entrants. So uh, it's, it's they see this as a betrayal to the original principles of the crypto community. But on the other hand, is this what you want? I think it, Go ahead. Wouldn't you, think, wouldn't you say that that's a, that's a fair criticism, though? Because if, if for example, a legislation uh, emerges yeah. and, a, and a regulatory regime emerges that essentially kicks away the ladder for everybody else aside from mm -hmm. the top you know, five exchanges, local exchanges that have the, the wherewithal and mm -hmm. the means to comply with everything, and then aren't you just recreating the banking system like yeah. you have a you know a kind of this hell of like five banks mm -hmm. that that are have, have are so protected that nobody can really compete with them uh at least until like new bank and these things came along mm -hmm. uh aren't you just kind of recreating the existing system which led to the need for crypto in the first place i think from a scientific point of view the answer is yes but again you this question goes way beyond crypto Right, because right. Uh, if you think about protecting the financial system, if you think about protecting investor, then look at all the banking regulation, look at all the capital markets, the security regulation, right? Uh, so concentration is a side effect of financial regulation at any time, okay? So right. uh, basically uh, we can see this either as a primary objective of the regulation to prevent new entrants to the market. Or we can see this as a side effect of regulation because we have a higher value to protect, which is the investors or the, and, and the regular uh, dynamics of the market, right? So you cannot have both, right? You cannot have a, a, a free market with no rules at all and investor protection. You're gonna have group pools, you're gonna have scams, you're gonna have, uh, you know, all the sorts of market failures that uh, we know for decades now, okay? So uh, the crypto industry in the whole world this time, and it goes beyond Brazil as well, it's facing a kind of uh, inflection point, right? So what is it that we want? We want freedom at any cost, or are we willing to sacrifice freedom, this liberty from the cyberpunk movement, and somehow to play the game that our parents did, to play the game of the incumbent institutions played, right? Uh, in order to be part of the monetary system, of the regular monetary system, right? Because if you think about unicorns, if you think about whales, what is the value of all this crypto or, uh, in, the, in the wallets of these whales, right? If they want to spend it, they're going to convert it with fiat money, right? Crypto is not a payment uh, solution at this time, at least. So some, some people envision that in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, uh, you can state that one Bitcoin 
is valued as one Bitcoin, not uh, $2,000 to $20,000, right? It, it's going to be uh, irrelevant how much Bitcoin is going to cost in terms of dollars. But right now, you, are, you need to connect with the traditional payment systems. And if you want to be rich, if you want to buy a yacht, if you want to buy a mansion, if you want to buy a corporation, you need to be rich in terms of fiat money, right? So you need to give up some freedom. You need to give up some, uh, you know, the, the crypto landscape and you need to dialogue. You need to communicate with your parents, so to speak, the financial institutions in order to uh, be rich in fiat money terms. So this is the point that we are facing right now. Yeah, yeah, and I, I agree in that, you know, anybody who's made spectacular paper gains mm -hmm. in crypto and then not sold and then lost mm -hmm. them. Exactly. <laughs> Now Porter would, would sort of you know identify with this for like yeah I didn't really mm -hmm. get you know it was fun while it lasted but I don't I'm not materially any better off than I was before mm -hmm. and I think you know until we reach this point of of hyper Bitcoinization exactly. if, if you believe that we'll ever happen uh, we're still wedded to the old fiat mm -hmm. system whether we like it or not um, it's an important perspective to keep in mind here we are chained at the, you know, we're joined at the hip with this, this old system for the time being, at least. So we need to find the best way to, to make it work. Turning back to the bill here. And, and I want to kind of ask, you know, two more questions here, and then I'll let you get going. But, but as it, as, it, as the legislation stands right now, and even irrespective of whether some of these Senate points uh, that were, that Expedito Neto is trying to remove, irrespective of what happens to these, if they, if they're included or they're not included, are there any uh, blind spots that you see in the legislation that, for whatever reason, these are points that didn't get included or just things that may, maybe were missed or things that will be an issue that they'll correct it via legislation again at a later point? Would love your thoughts on that. Thank you for that question. I believe that this is the, for the whole thing, this is the most valuable discussion for me, uh, personally speaking, because I worked at CDN, right? So I've seen lots of problems in terms of uh, investor protection uh, and conflicts of interest in intermediation, right? Uh, the, you, 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 in, in the advertisement, you say that you put your client first, you put the investor first, but in practice, when you offer products and services, you put your interests first, right? You uh, do not sell the product or service uh, that suits the investor better but uh, you sell the product service that uh, gets you the higher revenue, right? So uh, also we need, uh, in, in capital markets, we need to uh, ensure that we have transparency for the price discovery mechanism. So we have regular price mechanisms in place, uh, we need to have rules for market making uh, to ensure that the asset managers, the portfolio managers, they comply with their fiduciary duties. Uh, and, and we have a lot in, in terms of security regulation in order to protect investors. I don't think that we this regulation is immune to any criticism. I believe that we have several scams in uh, regulated markets. Uh, the investors, they could be more protected. The regulation could be more rational or reasonable, but uh, I still believe that having some regulation is better than no regulation at all. And I believe the greatest blind spot in this bill 
is the fact that it is it kind of goes to the concerns of the central bank which is, are related to uh, financial stability right uh segregation of assets uh you know uh minimum regulatory uh capital requirements the background of the board members or the directors of these companies but uh there there there's no single words in terms of uh the way that the intermediaries the broker dealers are going to work or the transparency uh of these uh service providers there, there are no rules that indicate there are there are no indications that this uh, further regulation are going to address the concerns that are uh, more related to the securities regulation. Okay, and CVM has not been a major sponsor of this whole thing, right? Uh, so it just sits there and it it and waits for the regulations to see. And there was one proposal in the Senate that included CVM as a stakeholder of this whole thing, but it did not move forward. So I believe the major blind spot here is that, that I don't believe that's going to be addressed by the further uh, regulation is uh, the things that securities regulation address. So CVM could jump in and try to add some provisions in order to create, let's say, uh, a more reasonable uh, financial markets, capital markets for small and medium enterprises, right? So we have the opportunity to somehow merge the crowdfunding regulations with the crypto regulations to create capital markets for small and medium enterprise, for startups and things like that. Right now, capital markets uh, is just for the big companies, okay? It's very expensive, it's very, uh, uh, irrational in terms of requirements. So I believe that we are missing an opportunity to see crypto not as payment solution, but as an investment, as a legitimate investment solution, not as a tulip, right? Not as a bubble. And uh, I don't think that this regulation uh, includes that. And this is my personal view. I, I hope that I, mm. I, they, they get me wrong. They prove me wrong in the future but I don't think that will happen. Well, that's, that's an interesting dynamic that the CVM has not been as involved <laughs> here or really involved at all from, from what you're describing in this, in this, this sausage making <laughs> process uh, because it's, the, the narrative is sort of flipped here in the US where exactly. everything is, yes, you know, crypto is, is perpetually at war with Gary <laughs> Gensler and the SEC. Yeah. And, and it's been this cat and mouse game dating back to, you know, 2017, right? When the SEC first came out with this report on, you know, saying that the Dow was in the 20 in 2016 was, it was a securities. These were securities. And I was going to start going after some of these ICO projects that were doing, I mean, some of these things were like obviously unregistered securities. <laughs> right. So it's, yeah. but, but there's been this big tussle ever since of, you know, we need more guidance from the SEC on what constitutes a security. And we've, and it's just been, we've gotten really nothing on that front, just a bunch of, uh, you know, kind of regulation by enforcement. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and now, unfortunately, it looks like, the, you know, you have a, a chair of the SEC who's pretty sort of hostile to the industry, uh, even though he spent several years as a professor yeah. talking, teaching people about this industry. And now he's sort of, uh, you know, turned 
uh, either change sides or I don't know, maybe saw the lights or I don't know what happened mm -hmm. to him, but, uh, but it's an interesting dynamic just because it's, it's like, so you're, 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 it's, it's kind of funny because your, your, your complaint here is that the, the, SC, the, the Brazilian SEC is not involved yes. enough. Right. Where in the U S it's like, it's like, these guys, it's like, these guys yeah. are just too involved or they're too, they're, they're missing the plot here. Um, but I do think that is an, an important question because uh, one of the areas of Brazil uh, the crypto adoption in Brazil uh, that I think is going to be the most uh, I, I see crypto mainly as like an, in, the, the use case for crypto I really see as is, is the investment mm -hmm. case. I don't, it, because it, you have, you already have peaks, you already have all these fintechs mm -hmm. that are helping to solve some of the payments and the financial inclusion questions. Mm -hmm. Whereas in other parts of the world, these are more, there's no infrastructure yes. for that. And crypto can help, you know, solve that need more mm -hmm. readily. Right. Whereas in Brazil, there already is some infrastructure for that. You don't sending money via yes. peaks uh, is, is basically the same as sending money via, uh, you know, USDC yes. or something or Bitcoin or whatever. Mm -hmm. It would be unfortunate if that did not uh, get taken into account here and the ability to, uh, you know, kind of the, the question of capital formation and the ability to raise funds and, and really, um, you know, create new investment products uh, is not, you know, at the forefront. I guess the last question here that I'll leave you with is, so uh, say this bill does get signed into law. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what does the process look like after that? Yep. Uh, obviously this Banco Central will probably be the regulator that's appointed to mm -hmm. oversee the industry. Mm -hmm. What does that process look like, uh, as far as them coming up with, with, uh, with a, a rulemaking process and, and a regulatory regime? Um, and then, and what do you, as of this point, like, what do you, project the, the, the chances are that this bill even passes and gets signed into law, say this year, just given that we're coming up on, uh, on election season and uh, priorities will be very uh, divided. Well, uh, let's start from the, the last question, right? Because I don't see this bill as something that is on, on the top of the political agenda for the elections, for example, okay? We had some scams like the file of Bitcoin and things like that, right? And in Brazil, I don't know if you, uh, uh, I, uh, in your newsletter, I see you covered some of these scams, of course. But uh, it's it's not a hot topic in terms of the political agenda because most of the Brazilian population, they see uh, investments as gambling, it's, it's something for the rich. It's changing, right? Crypto ch helps change that because people that were not familiar with investments, they start investing in crypto. We have much more people uh, investing in crypto than in uh, regulated markets here in Brazil. So uh, the adoption was quite uh, impressive here. But again, uh, it's not something that's part of the political agenda. And right now we have a lot on the plate for the politicians. So I believe that uh, we are going to have this bill approved uh, at some point this year. I don't know if the Senate uh, inclusions are going to be fully rejected or partially rejected. It's impossible to predict that. Probably uh, in the next weeks, you're going to see uh, the, uh, the development of these things. But I believe, I hope and believe that uh, in 2022, we're going to have this bill passed. 
And then we are going to have this uh, window, right, uh, that I've mentioned before for 180 days for everyone to adapt to these regulations. And in the meantime, the central bank is going to uh, perform a public consultation. It, it usually provides a draft of the rules that uh, it's going to apply to the markets and then the market participants go ahead and uh, provide documents, public documents indicating uh, what are the uh, viewpoints on these provisions. And after some time, the central bank, after some time, the, the central bank consolidate all these uh, participations from the uh, market uh, actors and then publish the rule. And probably because this is a complex rule, it's going to have its own window, uh, a separate window from bill. So if you do, and, and then also, uh, if you look at the licensing regimes in, currently in place by the central bank, they take up to 12 months to get, uh, to provide a license to the applicant. And they uh, they look like uh, they, they require corporate, corporate governance uh, conditions for the controlling shareholders, for the board members, for the directions, minimum regulatory capital. Uh, the uh, central bank analyzes the business plan. They perform interviews with the applicants. Uh, all any mergers and acquisitions must be subject to the central bank shareholders agreements and everything. So it, it's it's a complicated process. Uh, not as complicated as a bank, right? But uh, we have plenty of experience of this process in terms of uh, payments institutions. And if you do the math, 180 days for the law to be enforced, uh, the schedule for the central bank to perform the public consultation, the market participants to react to this proposal, the final rule to be uh, edited, and then any additional window for this new rule to be in place in all the authorization process. Probably I can say that after the bill passes, we are going to have like 12 to 24 months for it to be affected for the first authorized exchange to be operated in Brazil saying, hey, I am an exchange, I'm a VASP, uh, authorized by the Brazilian Central Bank uh, from 12 to 24 months. And I believe that this, is, this mm. is an eternity, right, for the crypto universe. So the whole discussion, yeah. this, the proposal <laughs> is just symbolic, right? I believe that it, it, for what it's worth, this bill, this proposal, this bill is just a symbolic statement that, hey, here in Brazil, we welcome crypto, uh, enterprises and we are uh, willing to provide some minimum level of legal certainty for you to be here that's the i don't know that's a summary of this whole thing for me if i'm an exchange like a like a binance or or a crypto.com or somebody or a kucoin mm -hmm. or whoever uh, you know my my strategy with this would potentially be to try to drag yes. this out as long as possible, right? Like I'm going to, uh, you know, file all sorts of uh, resolutions or complaints or lawsuits, or this is kind of where the lawfare uh, lobby game kicks in, right? Where how can you drag out this rulemaking process as long as possible? And then if I'm, you know, the Mercado Bitcoin or the whomever on the, on the local side, I'm, I'm trying to get this, <laughs> put, move as, get these guys to move as quick as possible. Uh, so I, I think I don't think we're we're done with any of these battles. Uh, on uh, I mean I think the, the turf just sort of shifts right to 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 a new a new a new front in the battle essentially. Uh, 
So that, I think that's interesting. And I, and, I, and I do think that your point about like, look, like this is, this is 12 to 24 months. That's an eternity in crypto. And uh, that's even assuming that this bill does pass this year. And uh, so even if it, if it passes, if you were to pass next, I mean, we're looking at easily that that's 2023, 2024, when you might actually have an exchange raising their hand, be like, Hey, I'm officially certified licensed by the central bank of Brazil to offer these services. Given the pace of innovation in crypto, who knows what we're going to even be talking yeah. about then? Like this might even be, yes. I mean, people might not even use centralized exchanges exactly. by that point, you know, we, we made all Uniswap yeah. or whatever. So, um, so anyway, there, there's a lot to think about here. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, of, of topics here that are, are, are just germane to crypto regulation generally and not, not necessarily Brazil, but they do obviously apply here in Brazil. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think that, it, it seems like the, the legislation does a good job, generally speaking, uh, of creating kind of a foundation base layer that uh, it doesn't talk about DeFi. It doesn't talk about stable coins, as far as I know. Uh, it doesn't talk about like NFTs or any of these things, right? It, it does a good job of kind of creating a base layer of legitimacy without, without maybe inadvertently strangling some innovation that might come out of this that may be layered on later or new business models and things of that nature, like you were mentioning earlier. So it does seem like there's, there's, this is probably the right mix of, of just let's kind of keep it as boring as possible and let let the central bank kind of handle some of these tougher questions around uh, these more nuanced issues. And it does, everyone seems to agree that the central bank is a pretty competent uh, entity to be, to be handling this. You know, I think it's sort of an oxymoron to say, you know, Brazil and sort of, you know, highly competent yes. regulation, but, or bureaucracies, but, uh, it, it does appear that they have the talent. They have, at least they have a leader, a president who's, who's very studied on this issue on this subject, you know, has obviously gone out of his way to, to learn about the industry and supports the supports yes. it generally. I'll, I'll give you the final mm -hmm. word here. Uh, but anything else you want to convey on on this brazilian crypto legislation uh what's the right word here it's, it's okay, almost well, this one last thing never-ending journey essentially <laughs> but, uh... Worry, uh, uh one last thing uh about blind spots is that currently uh if you work uh with crypto in brazil the the worst thing for you is to answer the question is this a security i believe this is a problem everywhere right but especially in brazil uh, when you ask, is this a security? Uh, we have tokenization of several assets here. For We have the fund tokens, we have the precatorios, we have the tokenization of some receivables in the real estate industry. And it's quite impressive that we have achieved a, a lot of business models that we don't see in other jurisdictions. I was talking to friends the other day and one said, hey, why aren't we proud of that? We have achieved so much in terms of tokenization of assets that uh, we don't see in any other country. And uh, right now I see many projects in terms of tokenization. The, the Brazilian exchange created a digital asset unit, the B3 digital asset. Uh, Itaú created its own digital asset. My major bank created. Uh, we have the MBDR, the Mercado Bitcoin. We, we also have Liki. So I believe that we are missing the opportunity to uh, create uh, some legal certainty for these companies to say, hey, okay, we acknowledge that these are under registered securities, 
and let's help you to test that. And you might say, oh, but it's a sandbox already do that, right? So the sandbox was delayed a couple of times and it took almost a year right after duplicants got their license. One year is an eternity. The CBM. Yeah, at CBM, right? yes, exactly. So I believe that we can uh, study a way to somehow uh, bypassing this whole legislative process and discussing with the CBM, is there any way for us to foster this tokenization industry in Brazil without having the constraints of the sandbox or the timeline of the sandbox and without having to uh, wait for this whole legislative process to end? I believe there's a way to that. And I would invite uh, all the listeners and all the other actors in the crypto industry to help thinking about that. Is there any way that we can uh, somehow adapt the security regulation without the need of a specific bill in order to welcome this tokenization project so they don't have any enforcement actions from the CVM as the SEC is doing in the United States? Can we create a safe harbor? And this is something that Commissioner Hester Priest is doing in the United States, right? She wants to create a safe harbor. She wants to welcome crypto while Guy Gensler is trying to uh, get them out of the market. So I believe that uh, we can uh, learn from what the US is doing and say, instead of regulating by enforcement, we can actually regulate by creating some legal certainty and adapting security regulation. That's the provocation, the invitation for all the listeners and for you. I would love to see that happening in the, in the foreseeable future. Thank you for having me and thank you for this great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And yeah, and Hester Purse point, uh, she's sadly, she's sort of a voice in the wilderness yes, here. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but I think, but she has definitely helped move the needle on, uh, on a lot of areas internally within the SEC and just proposing these types of mm -hmm. ideas. And yeah, it would be great to see a similar type of champion within the, the Brazilian yeah. CVM who's, who's really pushing this, but that, that's a really great point. I, I, I think you, you raise a really great point that there is a lot of these asset tokenization experiments that have been occurring. And I, I've been covering these, some of these in my mm -hmm. newsletter, but I haven't really taken the time to really dive mm -hmm. deep or, or understand how these work or what, what their, what their adoption is or anything. But uh, you don't really see a whole lot of this stuff happening elsewhere. Um, and at least does, this seems like an area that hasn't really, there's, there's a lot of potential here, but it hasn't really been explored mm -hmm. too much. Uh, scale uh, across the whole industry. So Brazil, I think is definitely a leader here. Um, well, Isaac, thank you so much. This has been a bit of a marathon conversation here. We really appreciate your time and we'll have to do this again soon. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Aaron. It's nice to be here. Thank you. And thank you for all the listeners to, that came to this point of the podcast. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening and we will be back soon with another great guest. Obrigado, everyone, and thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the Brazil Crypto Report newsletter on Substack if you haven't already. And please do give the show a five-star rating on your podcast app if you enjoyed this content. We'll be back soon with another great guest.